Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to be discussing Acts chapter 18. In this chapter, Paul is in Corinth, he returns to Antioch, and Apollos speaks boldly in Ephesus. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts chapter 18. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Bijan, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is uh, handling the technical side of the podcast, making sure everything gets recorded and edited and properly produced for distribution. Uh, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Acts, and we're making good headway into the work of Paul's ministry, uh, Luke's record of that. Today, we're talking about uh, Acts chapter 18. Uh, this is in uh, the middle of uh, Paul's second missionary journey, and he's going to various Greco-Roman cities and preaching the gospel, and we have an account of the different reactions to Paul's preaching. Uh, the reactions are becoming more intense, uh, more negative, as we're approaching the end of this account uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 19, where there's a riot that breaks out in response to Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus. Uh, one of the things that we noticed early on in the stu- our studies in Acts is the way that the apostles' lives are conformed to the life of Jesus. They're living out the life of Jesus again. Uh, that's true of Peter and John in Jerusalem, of Peter himself in his arrest, imprisonment, and release of Stephen. And the same thing is true of Paul. And I think one way to think about the section we're in the middle of right now is to think about this section of Acts as a a kind of grand trial scene stretched out over about 10 chapters. Uh, Beginning in chapter 16, Paul encounters a variety of different accusations against him. Uh, Sometimes it's Gentiles who are accusing him of undermining the customs of the Romans. That happens in Philippi. In Thessalonica and Corinth, it's Jews who accuse him in in Corinth, in the chapter we're looking at today, accuse him of going against the law of uh, the Jews and they look for Roman help in suppressing him. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Uh, They tell uh, Gallio, the uh, proconsul. So there are accusations coming against Paul over the course of several chapters, a series of accusations from Jews and Gentiles. And in those chapters, Paul doesn't have an opportunity to respond. He doesn't give a defense of himself until until he gets to Jerusalem and he's rested in Jerusalem. He first speaks to a mob in Jerusalem. He testifies before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He's transferred to Caesarea, where he appears before a couple of Roman governors. And then the climax of this sequence of defenses comes in chapter 26 with his defense before Herod Agrippa. So over the course of about 10 chapters from his time in Philippi to his appearance before Agrippa, Paul is first accused and then gives a series of defenses. And he's um, we have, again, a, a, a long a long trial scene uh, that stretched out over several chapters in several different cities. And this, again, f- feeds into that uh, theme of the apostles reliving the life of Jesus. Paul is not just going through a series of trials and accusations as Jesus did, but he's being tried in the very same courts as Jesus was. I think a point we've made in the past, but Paul is tried before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. He's tried before a couple of Roman governors. He's tried before Herod. And those those are the same three courts that put Jesus on trial. So chapter 18, when Paul is in Corinth, uh, this is part of, it's one of the layers of what's going on here is that Paul is again being accused. He's being brought into the dock and eventually he'll be able to give, he'll have a chance to give his defenses in various settings. But right now it's the accusation stage of the, of this extended trial sequence. A, A general comment, and I'm not sure if you all made this when I was absent on vacation or not, but. I'm reading through these passages again this past week, and Acts 18 and 19 especially because we're going to be dealing with those soon. And I noticed something, that there's there's things that are not in these stories. And sometimes I think you can learn a lot about a story by asking what's not in the narrative. Um, And it can focus your attention on what's actually there. 
And what's absent in these stories, what's missing, is we don't know anything about how Paul organizes these fledgling churches. We don't have any organizational details, any bylaws, any constitution, any details about orders or offices, really. Uh, there's a couple times where elders are mentioned. Um, we don't even have anything like uh, a charter that he writes out about how these um, uh, people are going to be reached in the future, no methodology, there's no confession, there's no reference to catechisms. And, and, and noticing that, I'm like, well, what do we see? What we see here is people, lots of different people. Um, and I think, I, I think I'm appreciating more what's foundational and world-changing in the first century about the Christian faith is there are all these people speaking the word, people living out the message, flesh and blood people. I mean, Paul, when he leaves Athens, we're told that there's, there's people that he left, men who believed, and there's this Dionysius, the Areopagite, there's a woman named Damaris, and then in 18, all of a sudden, we find Aquila and uh, Priscilla, his wife, um, and we also have Silas and Timothy coming back to him, and then also, there's Crispus, the ruler, and then when Paul is discouraged, apparently, the Lord appears to him and says, hey, don't be afraid. I have many people in the city. So that I think what Luke wants us to know is that Paul leaves behind people, um, and these people are instrumental then in the kingdom, in spreading the kingdom. And it keeps, and it's also the case, it seems to me, as you read through all these stories, that it's people that keeps Paul motiva motivated and energized. Um, he's an ordinary man with like passions that we are, and he needs companionship, and he gets, he gets motivated when he starts meeting his people, his friends, his, his assistants, his companions. And I think that's significant uh, in reading through Acts, and something I, I think I've missed in the past. Mm-hmm. You expect him to be writing a book of church order, yeah, and leaving a book of church order at every church, yeah, or or a, a, a doctrinal confession with propositions that everybody must uh, sign off on. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. You can trace it in Paul's epistles as well. It's the, you know, probably the last epistles he wrote, Timothy and, and Titus, where he turns his attention to appointing elders and very much get the sense there that he wants to leave the church in a, in a safe pair of hands, you know, to men who are going to be of good repute and get it a good reputation and so forth. And that doesn't seem to be his concern early on in his epistles, just as it isn't here in his missionary journeys. Mm -hmm. uh, when you started talking about his epistles, I was thinking about the, the various greetings sections, uh, often toward the end of an epistle where Paul lists all the people to whom he's bringing greetings. And then you have extended lists, again, as Jeff was saying, extended lists of names of people who have contributed in some way to the work of the church. Uh, and he's, he's forging cross-congregational, uh, he's, he's crossing geographic boundaries and connecting people by sending greetings from the church that he's writing from to the church that he's writing to. But again, the emphasis is on the, the people. That's not to say, of course, that there isn't any concern with proper order or proper exercise of authority. There is that, especially in the pastorals. But I think I, I agree with Jeff that there's a heavy emphasis on the quality of the people that are, that are ministering. And a lot of the people are travelers um, at key stages of Israel's history. Its story is defined more by travelers. You have the story of the patriarchs who wander from place to place, or the stories of the prophets who are very often peripatetic. And you have the same thing here with characters like Aquila and Priscilla. Um, Aquila comes from originally sort of Anatolia area, and then he's living in Corinth now in Greece. And then he's going to be found in Rome at the end of the Book of Romans. He's greeted there. And so, like a number of other characters, he's just, in the matter of his work, moving from place to place and carrying a message with him. And that connection between churches is a sort of level of church organization that's more informal and haphazard, but is absolutely fundamental to the church's formation. And we hear a lot, a lot more about that than the internal church structures mm -hmm. that we're more familiar with. Mm -hmm. Right. What do you all make of the fact that we have uh, another husband and wife 
duo here. Aquila and his wife Priscilla are both mentioned in um, not only at the beginning of chapter 18, but again, in relation to Apollos. Uh, they're a pair. Uh, they're uh, traveling with Paul later. We've had a couple other husband-wife duos in Acts and also in Luke. What's significant about that kind of pairing? Well, one thing, and this is not an incredibly profound, but it does, again, point out something that's missing in most of the accounts here in Acts, and that is there's never any mention of Timothy's wife or Silas's wife or Paul's wife. Um, or um, Apollos' wife. So there has to be something significant about Priscilla. She apparently was some sort of force, some sort of, uh, uh, and she's mentioned first, you know, when they're giving instruction to Apollos here at the end of the chapter. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's I guess it wasn't normal uh, that, um, that Luke, Luke is certainly not normally identifying a husband and wife, even mm-hmm. though they may have been taking, isn't it later on, I think in Peter, one of Peter's epistle that he says, doesn't everybody have a right to take on a, take along a believing wife? But we never really hear about it, uh, mostly, except for a few uh, couples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Paul who says that, and he talks about other apostles who take on a believing wife. He, he doesn't, he, 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 t- he gives up that uh, that's right. That's yes, right. right. It is Paul. Yeah. Right. First Corinthians nine. Right. And right. one of the one of the thoughts I've had uh, is, uh, well, I mean, within Acts you have Ananias and Sapphira early on, uh, which is kind of the negative because uh, they conspire to lie to the Holy Spirit. Aquila and Priscilla are clearly agents of the Spirit for uh, supporting Paul, assisting him for correcting and improving the message of Apollos. Uh, but I'm also thinking back all the way to the beginning of Luke, where you have Simeon and Anna in the temple, not husband and wife, but a male and female figure. And then the two the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus um, were not identified as husband and wife, but there's speculation that that's what that's that's what what's happening there. But you have you have these occasional pairs of, of a man and a woman, which sometimes in kind of c- contrasting figures that are uh, like Ananias and Sapphira, but often a kind of double witness, uh, perhaps there's a kind of Adam-Eve illusion uh, that's, in, that's deep in the background, but uh, that's, that seems to, be, seems to recur uh, at, at, at intervals, at least throughout Luke's writings. Well, there's definitely the double witness, but there's also something there about just companionship. In most of these cases here, it's, Paul is usually traveling with a companion, Mm-hmm. Or he's sending two people, Silas and Timothy. Or later on in Acts 19, he'll send Timothy and Erastus to Asia. Um, so uh, there's something here also just about the need for companionship. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, when Paul is alone, well, Paul's alone in Athens, apparently. But he's ordinarily not alone. He's with right. somebody else. Right. And they're tent makers by trade, which seems to be given some significance that's paul's profession too um first time we learn this but the act of making a tent would obviously make us um recall the um, building of the tabernacle and they're going to raise up the tabernacle of david and so it seems appropriate that you should have a calling of tent makers um when jesus called his disciples he chose fishermen to be fishers of men and now he's choosing um tent makers as part of a tent building project. Right. And Paul, Paul makes uh, what I think is a, an allusion to that, not to the craft of tent, tent making per se, but to his connection with the tabernacle in first Corinthians. I'm like, I'm a, a wise master workman uh, who's building with precious materials. I think it, there's a, a connection back to Bezalel and Holiab who are given wisdom by the spirit in order to make the furnishings of the tabernacle and to adorn the tabernacle. And Paul's doing the same thing. Same thing in the church. Jesus himself, a carpenter, comes to build his temple, and then he deploys a tent maker to uh, set up outposts of the the living temple, who is Jesus, all over the all over the Roman world. It, it occurs to me too that the, the the movement here is interesting. Priscilla and Aquila they don't originally come from Italy, but they're in Corinth because they have been driven out of Rome by Claudius. Verse two tells us so. There's a, a movement from 
from the capital city to, to Corinth to, Greek, to the Greek city. Paul, of course, is going to make the route in the other direction. He's, he's not yet going to go to Rome. It's not until the end of the book, but uh, there's a, a movement back in. So Claudius is driving Jews out of the city. At some point, Jews are, are allowed to return to the city. By the, Paul, by the time Paul gets there, there are Jews already there to receive him. But that, that's, this movement, is, it's a dispersal and then a return to Rome that um, might have some significance for understanding the, the direction and the trajectory of Paul's ministry. He doesn't just intend to go to Jerusalem. Uh, he does intend that, but he intends to go beyond Jerusalem to Rome. And you have that connection with Rome introduced here with Priscilla and Aquila. And it seems to me you have expulsions from both Jerusalem and Rome, um, and then interactions in the center. Yeah. Also yeah. the fact that you have all these people who have been expelled from Rome who will later return to Rome. It means that when Paul writes the book of Romans, he already knows a few dozen people in Rome, even though he's never visited the city. Right. Yeah, yeah good point. And it, it, yeah, it also it seems... Um, it's it's pretty pretty clear. Even someone like Ben Witherington, and is who's ordinarily cautious about these things, is convinced that uh, Aquila and Priscilla are Christians already when they arrive in Corinth, uh, because of the connections with the reason for Claudius uh, sending out the Jews, because there's commotion about Crestus, mm-hmm. uh, which is a colloquial way of just talking about Christus, of Jesus. So apparently there's uh, riots in Rome about Jesus, which um, causes Aquila and Priscilla to be expelled. And that's that same thing is happening all over. It's going to happen here in Corinth as well. Uh, There's going to be a riot because of Jesus. Um, All over the empire, uh, there are um, disturbances and arguments about, who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Paul's ministry in Corinth follows the pattern that he's been following throughout the book of Acts, throughout his missionary journeys. He goes into the synagogue. He testifies that Jesus is the Christ, which is the message that he's been proclaiming in synagogues all over the place. There's resistance to that, and so he leaves. Uh, and then he sets up a shop elsewhere. Uh, this time with uh, in a, in a uh, house right next to the synagogue, verse 7 tells us, house of Titius Justice, who is a worshiper of God, which I take to be a Gentile God-fearer. And then some of the Jews come with him too, Crispus, the head of the synagogue. So um, it's a similar kind of, a similar kind of movement uh, uh, to the Jew first. The Jews hear, some believe, and some become followers of Jesus. But then there's resistance from the from the synagogue that drives Paul out uh, so that he begins a, a ministry that expands beyond just the synagogue to more inclusive of Jews and, and now also Gentiles. So almost exactly the same pattern as we have in chapter 13 in Antioch. But the key difference here is that he remains in Corinth, whereas previously he's moved out of the city. Right. And the reason he remains is the, uh, the vision that he gets in verse 9, which is yeah, deviation from that pattern. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a long-term stay for Paul. He's there for a year and a half uh, in Corinth. Uh, and it's because the Lord has directed it. This is a, a fulfillment of the hope that uh, Peter expressed at Pentecost, that the, the Spirit would give visions and dreams and prophecies and would direct the work of the church uh, through those means of revelation. That's, that's what's happening to Paul here. He's had visions before that's direct, that have directed the progress of his mission, and he remains in the, remains in the city. And because, because he's promised a great people, the language that's used in the, in the vision is a term, term that's typically used for the Jews as the people of God. The people, the great people that are going to be gathered in Corinth are going to include not only Jews but Gentiles. But that's that's given the designation of being the people. Uh, they're all now incorporated into Israel. It's an interesting sequence of events, which is descri- described, isn't it? Because you've got this very multicultural city, which we've said there are Jews and Gentiles there, and then travellers um, arriving. And then you know, there is opposition. And Paul in verse 6 uh, makes this declaration, you know, from now on I will go to the um, Gentiles. And then Pretty soon afterwards, the ruler of the synagogue is is converted, which seems like an, an unusual progression um, of events. But it, it's um, it's facilitated by this conversion of, of the guy um, 
the house of a man um, who, who is next door to the synagogue. And so you get the sense that there is this movement and, and it's not unrelated to Judaism. And yet at the same time, it's distinct from it. It grows out of the house sort of next door to the synagogue. It just strikes me as an interesting portrayal of the, of the way in which the gospel comes to, uh, to Corinth. Mm-hmm. Now, this is Corinth. This is uh, the Corinth that Paul writes his first letter to about all the, uh, the problems with them speaking in tongues. It's fascinating that here you have a house church meeting next door to the synagogue. And apparently in this Christian house church, uh, you have a breakout of languages, of, uh, of tongues. Um, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that tongues are for unbelievers uh, and seemingly here unbelieving Jews to provoke them to jealousy uh, by, by uh, the new people of God speaking in a language that's not Hebrew. Um, and it, it's always seemed to me, and I'm not sure where I first heard this or read this, that this explains a lot about why you don't have a great deal of emphasis in other epistles about tongues. In fact, you have virtually nothing. But in Corinth, it's a huge problem because you have these two houses, and they're 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 open air houses. This is the ancient world. It's, they're you know not hermetically sealed and environmentally you know uh, pure houses. So everybody hears what's going on in the next house. So all the Christian or the Christians, the spirit is poured out into Christians in order to provoke those next door to jealousy, um, and some believe and some don't. But then the Corinthians end up misusing the, their tongues, misusing that gift in ways it's not intended. I first heard that uh, theory from Jim Jordan, uh, as you know, most of the things I know I learned from Jim. <laughs> uh, I, and, and just to highlight one, one aspect of what you were saying, that it, it fits with the, what Paul says about tongues being a witness and a witness to unbelievers, uh, and uh, your your suggestion is, and Jim's suggestion was that it's particularly unbelieving Jews, so that it has a particular function. It's a witness to the gift of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit, certainly, but it's also specifically a witness to and against the Jews. Uh, Paul quotes uh, from Isaiah in that passage in First Corinthians where he talks about this, and it's a passage that talks about. Israel being inundated with people speaking a foreign tongue, speaking tongues that they don't understand, which I think is rooted uh, back in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, which was one of the curses is that they'll be surrounded by people they, whose language they don't understand. And the image is one of invasion. So there's a, there's a doubleness to this. It's provoking them to jealousy, but it's also a sign of uh, doom on Israel. I think it does. it's connected with the... Uh, uh, the eventual conquest of Jerusalem, the con- the fall of Jerusalem, and the after effects, the ripple effects of that that happened throughout Ju- uh, to Judaism throughout the, throughout the Roman world. So it's it's partly a threat. It's a witness to a coming threat. We should probably hear some allusion in um, the statement about their blood being on their own head to the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter thirty three one to nine, and the duty of the watchman uh, for Israel, and his duty is. Paul's duty is in part as a messenger who has to deliver this warning to the Jews if they do not respond. And having delivered that, part of the judgment is that he is removed as a watchman. Well, as has happened in other cities, uh, Paul's ministry, first in the synagogue, then uh, in a wider setting, provokes opposition from the Jews. Uh, This is similar to what happens in Thessalonica, where it's Jewish uh, leaders who accuse Paul. Uh, here, the, their accusation has specifically to do with Paul's uh, uh, teaching that undermining the law in Thessalonica. The, the Jews charge the Jews are the one that, ones that charge Paul with uh, violating the decrees of Caesar. But that leads to um, this trial setting. Paul doesn't speak, but he's Paul's not allowed to speak. Verse fourteen begins to open his mouth, but he's he's silenced, and uh, Gallio doesn't doesn't hear the doesn't hear the case. He just dismisses it because it has to do with Jewish concerns and not with something that should be before the, before the Roman court. I'm struck here by the Jews' method of opposition to Paul. They seek very much, while Paul uses the, the resources at his disposal, the people 
who he comes across, tent making and so forth. The, the Jews try to um, turn the authorities against him. And in prophetic terms, that very much brings to my mind at least Daniel's view of the Gentile empires. Um, for Daniel, they're, they're, they're kind of they're beasts, aren't they? They're, they're kind of brute sources of power which can be directed in different ways and at times i guess they're tamed so nebuchadnezzar is, is tamed by daniel ultimately by god um artaxerxes is used by esther um but then you know the the later empires aren't tamed it, it seems and you know antiochus arises from the greeks and in here it just feels to me that the jews are, are Kind of playing with fire, um, I, I guess, in in trying to sort of stir up the the Roman Empire, and ultimately it will be stirred up against the Jews themselves. It, it very much brings to mind the whole um, uh, scenes in Revelation with, with the beast that turns against the woman, and um, uh, that seems to be, to my mind, like a strong undercurrent here in in Acts. Mm-hmm. This is an unflattering portrait of Roman authority, much as we see in the case of Pilate. Um, it's not really governing very well. He claims that if it was a violent crime or something like that, there would be an issue. And then there is a violent crime committed against Sosthenes immediately afterwards in front of the tribunal, and he takes no action. And that relationship between the Roman authorities and the mob um, is throughout, I think, an indictment upon the claims mm. of Roman rule and the actual reality. Mm. It's also a sad reflection on the state of Judaism, isn't it? I'm um, I'm always slightly conscious when uh, talking about texts in in this kind of way that the church does have a, a history of anti-Semitism, and a lot of that is out of misguided theology about kind of the the blood of Jesus' death still being um, on the Jews, and and I mean that strikes me as sort of multiply um, mistaken, but particularly. Um, mistaken in the sense that it is applying the sort of very direct consequences of the crucifixion of Christ to the Jews of Paul's day and age to the nation of Israel as we recognize it today. Um, but I'm always kind of conscious of, of um, uh, sort of pointing that out in these sorts of conversations. I, I do think that's important. Uh, and yet at the same time, these are the people that are supposed to be the source of life and health and peace and wisdom and law and order in the empire. That's why God dispersed them uh, among the, whether it's the Babylonians or Persians or Greeks or Romans. And yet now we see that they are not a source of any, anything good. Uh, and these are the people uh, that the Christian church is replacing. These are, they're, they're supposed to be advisors, prophets to remember to the, uh, to the Romans, and they're not fulfilling their vocation. Uh, and the people that Paul is leaving behind, the Christians, especially, well, not especially, but even those that have some standing in these cities, they're going to fulfill that, as we see, you know, over the course of a couple centuries in the Roman empires, the Christians became uh, the new pro- prophetic advisors for those in authority. Um, and yet, and yet again, here these Jews in the first century here are a source of trouble, rioting, and and uh, and criminal, violent behavior. I want to qualify that uh, just a bit, Jeff. I, I agree with the thrust of it, but I think it is important to see that part of what's happening in Acts is a split within Judaism itself. Uh, where I mean, here you yeah, have right, Christmas, right. the leader of the synagogue is right. among the believers. Uh, along with his household, uh, many Corinthians here, there, there are other Jews that are part of that. So what you're having, what's going on is a bifurcation of Judaism. And what actually continues as the Christian church is one one of the branches of that split, now incorporating Gentiles into it. Um, so yeah. it, it's a, that's the, the source is a split that happens within Judaism initially. Yeah, that's a helpful qualification. And I usually qualify that by saying the apostate Jews, the ones right, who right. are rebelling. And that's I, I should have done that early on. Thank you for that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting here. Like James's uh, suggestion, the connection with the uh, Revelation seventeen and the beast turning on the on the on the city on the on the harlot city. 
because you do have that. You have the Jews thinking they, they might be able to tame this beast and uh, direct it against uh, Paul and his companions, but uh, that the opposite happens and the beast turns against them. Yeah. Uh, but it's it. Uh, Alistair's point is also very very important. You know, in some sense, we can say the Roman the Roman Empire uh, is protective of the church in the Book of Acts. I think there's you can say that at a very general level. But I think Alistair, you're, you're right to see here not so much any kind of conscious protection out of a sense of justice, but more of you know, it's as you said, it's an indictment of Roman authority, the way Roman authority behaves, and maybe even a, a hint of. Uh, Gallio's own hostility to the Jews. Uh, he dismisses this as not a case that should come before the Roman court, even though it's creating a public disturbance. And then when Sosthenes be- is beaten up, he doesn't pay any attention to that. It's is this is this Gallio thinking? Well, the Jews are getting getting their what they deserve. Is there a is there a hint that there's a um, Gallio is not just incompetent or indifferent to fairness, but he's, uh, he's actively opposed to the Jews. I mean, I, I don't know if this is necessarily right. I read Gallio's initial reaction as very Pilate-esque. You know, this is your own mm-hmm. internal Jewish problem, sort it out yourself. And I take the Jews then to kind of be trying to stir up Gallio to do something, like saying, all right, if you want to, us to sort it out ourselves this is the way we're going to do it like through just violence uh and and mob rule and the like um thankfully we've gone beyond that these days and that sort of thing doesn't go on anymore (laughs) yes no riots in the streets these days (laughs) so you're taking in verse 17 you're taking they all who took take hold of sosthenes as uh the jews who brought paul before Gallio, is that mm. is that who's doing the beating? I mean, that, that was how I read it, but I mean, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm open to other open to other interpretations. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, what would motivate them to beat up the leader of the synagogue or Sosthenes? Is Sosthenes? I don't know. What, what would what would motivate the Jews to uh, to turn on their own leader? Perhaps if he was being indulgent to Paul and not taking action against him, mm. um, he would be seen as compromising and forcing them, as they would perceive it, into mm. having to get the Gentiles to resolve an issue that their own leaders weren't handling. Yeah, okay. Okay, so the sequence would be the Jews bring Paul before Gallio. Gallio dismisses the case, not concerned about it. They're all driven away. And then the Jews turn on the, their chief who didn't carry out the kind of discipline that they thought he should have and maybe didn't bring, didn't press the case before Gallio in, with the same zeal that he should have. So it's, it's uh, the zeal of certain Jews raised against a more moderate leader of the synagogue. Is that the kind of scenario you're seeing? Yes, I, that's the way I would read it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing the climax of it as being a, a frustration to the Jews plans you know but Gallio paid no attention to this i think they wanted him to re-engage but he didn't oh, okay interesting from from that scene we move on to uh, further travel uh for paul uh verses 18 and following he's uh after remaining in corinth for some time he leaves for syria with priscilla and aquila he comes to ephesus uh, and then he leaves from ephesus to round out the this uh, missionary journey by going back back to Caesarea and Antioch. Really compressed uh, travelogue there, but uh, it gives us a, at least a conclusion to the, this, this particular venture. There are a couple of, and then we, we have this, this last section in the chapter on Apollos, which I want to return to, but a couple of things in that, in that travelogue section that are worth uh, highlighting. One is the, the haircut and the vow, which uh, verse 18 mentions. is Paul cutting his hair as a completion of a vow, presumably which uh, appears to be something similar to, if not, a, if not exactly, a, a Nazarite vow. The reason why I'm somewhat hesitant to equate the two is because he's not, he's not doing this in Jerusalem, which was, you'd think be the place where you complete a Nazarite vow. He would take it to the temple and offer sacrifice. Uh, but the, the haircut um, as the completion of a vow does seem to have some link with the, the Nazarite system back in uh, Numbers 5. 
But Peter, couldn't he finish the vow, uh, whatever vow that was, at Centre, and then sacrifice would have been made in Jerusalem. So, which is, which you know, he does go to the temple when he gets to Jerusalem. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you're seeing it. The 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 haircut can the haircut that completes the time of the vow is can can precede the the sacrificial part of the rite. Yeah, that's yeah. that's possible. Thanks. And Paul in in chapter twenty one verse twenty six, Paul is in the temple purifying himself. Uh, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So that could be seen as mm-hmm. uh, some kind of completion of the Nazarite, mm-hmm. the Nazarite vow that he had mm-hmm. taken. It seems one more also a uh, reminder that the book of Acts is a transitional period. It's, bet- it's somewhat between the ages. Um, so he's taking Nazarite vows. They're still circumcising. They're still sacrificing, as you just read, uh, but none of that seems to be compulsory, but more voluntary, given that there's still a temple standing, and there's still synagogues of Jews, um, and everything is is moving in uh, the uh, you know a direction of Christian church with new uh, new rituals, new rites, but not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think about the alternative reading to take it to mean that? He was beginning a Nazarite vow, and it began with a haircut. And then, uh, um, you know, the vow was then going to last from the time of that haircut until he got to Jerusalem. Interesting. So uh, I was going to raise the question of what, why, why he would take a Nazarite vow in any case, wherever it starts. And uh, what my my uh, baseline thought would be that he's taking it as a as part of a, a Nazarite took a vow as part of a mission. He's going to complete a task, uh, and then uh, ask the Lord to support him until the completion of that task, and the and various uh, rites and and uh, gestures associated with that with that vow. So uh, Paul is on a mission. And he has the task of taking the gospel around to the Asia. But if you if you turn that around, the time frame around, then the task that lies before him is to get to Jerusalem which uh, would put a somewhat different complexion on it, uh, especially when you add the things that we're going to find out in the subsequent chapters that he's, he knows when he, when he, before he goes to Jerusalem, he knows he's going to suffer there and be arrested. He knows that he's following the footsteps of Jesus in going to Jerusalem, and he's going to have uh, similar kinds of experiences there. Uh, and so taking the Nazarite vow at, that, at this moment prospectively, uh, that that does make a lot of sense. That would then be interesting because he would never actually get to offer the sacrifice. Isn't it um, interrupted by a riot in, um, when he finally gets to Jerusalem? Yeah, I, I didn't continue to read. Um, yeah, uh, I, the next verse in chapter 21, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the multitude and laid hands on him. So he doesn't complete the full uh, sequence of sacrifices. That's right. One of the things that occurs to me here is that it's um, tempting, I think, to try and draw fairly clear lines and boundaries between what Paul is doing on his missionary journeys. But um, in uh, chapter 18 and verse 6, we get this statement, you know, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And I can imagine just taking it in isolation, people interpreting that as some watershed moment. But as soon as he then gets to Ephesus in verse 19, um, he goes, straight to the synagogue and, and reasons with the Jews. So uh, a lot of these things are just kind of uh, local and place-specific statements, aren't they? Right, right. And even even within uh, Corinth, uh, the sequence is, I shall go to the Gentiles. He departed two verses later. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. So yeah, yeah. it seems like he's not, he's not ceasing to, you know, to preach to Jews, uh, even though he's the focus might shift and he's certainly outside the synagogue so that's that's a change of location for his ministry but um there's still jews that are being converted after that shift yeah we we mentioned sosthenes earlier uh as the one who is apparently a christian sympathizer according to the the uh, the mob the jewish mob the the uh, apostate jewish mob and yet sosthenes is mentioned in first corinthians uh right up front uh as a brother so apparently 
Sosthenes was converted sometime afterwards. Mm. So this fits in with what you're saying that he doesn't stop talking to the Jews, just he doesn't he doesn't continue to visit the synagogue regularly like he used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would also support the, the suggestion that he's being beaten up for the way that he's being accommodating to Paul. The mm-hmm. the more radi- the more radical Jews are uh, thinking he's a he's he's compromised. Uh, the, line, the chapter ends with this uh, notice about Apollos, who's introduced rather suddenly for the first time. Uh, we're told a, a good bit about him, his uh, origin, his abilities, uh, his um, limited understanding of Jesus and his ministry, and about the effect of his ministry in, in various places. His, his, uh, he's mentioned not only here as a preacher in Ephesus, but at the beginning of the next chapter, he has moved on to Corinth but becomes a, an important figure here at the end with, with, a, with a good deal of information about his, uh, his work. How do you guys read verse 25? So Apollos is able to teach accurately concerning Jesus, um, and yet he knows only the baptism of John, um, and yet he's not, he doesn't then undergo a spirit baptism as is described at the start of chapter 19, um, with these other folks. So, well, yeah, how do you envisage Apollos? Well, th- there are some similarities with the next group of people in Ephesus that Paul meets in the first part of 19, who, um, you know, were disciples, but had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they had John's baptism, but not the baptism into Jesus. There's some similarities there, yeah. um, but there's also some differences because here we're told that um, he is fervent in spirit. That's probably should be capitalized or in the spirit. Mm. So it's not like he's without spirit. Um, I, I've, I've always just thought that, yeah, you know, here's, here's a guy who has all the facts about Jesus, right. And um, about his messianic credentials, according to the Hebrew scriptures. And yet he um, didn't, ha- hadn't been baptized, didn't know about, um, the baptism of Jesus in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, that's what he had to be instructed in. I wonder if it has to do with the, the structure that Jesus lays out for the sequence of John's ministry and his ministry. Is a, a, it's, a, it's a story of two, two baptisms. Mm-hmm. John baptizes in water for repentance in anticipation of the Christ. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, and then there is a, a water baptism that's associated with that. But uh, when Jesus talks about his baptism in, con- in, in contrast to John's, it's not, it's not about the difference in the ritual. It's about the repentant anticipation of the coming of the Christ and then the exaltation of the Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Uh, so I wonder if he's, I think, uh, Jeff, you're right that uh, Apollos is in spirit. He, he, he has been given the Holy Spirit. He has power to refute the Jews in verse 28, which is given by the Spirit. But I wonder if it has to do with something like his uh, ignorance of the effects of Pentecost, the event of Pentecost, probably not the event of Pentecost, but maybe the effects of Pentecost. And what he knows is still a faith that anticipates the completion of, he knows about Jesus, but it's a faith that anticipates that completion with the baptism of the Spirit. I'm trying to connect the two the, these two events, as Je, as both Jeff and James said, that the description of Paulus and the description of the Ephesian John followers are similar. And if you put those two together, it seems to be a what they lack is an understanding of the baptism of the Spirit that has come with Jesus, um, and that would be kind of the the climax of Jesus' ministry. So, what what would what would Apollos be saying in that case? Uh, when he's teaching about Jesus, he he would know Jesus' teaching. He would know Jesus' ministry. He might know Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, but he wouldn't uh, have grasped the significance of Jesus' exaltation and the outpouring of the Spirit. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila uh, relay to him, and so he can teach the way of God more accurately. Contrasting it with the disciples that follow in Ephesus, they don't seem to have such a clear idea of the one to whom John was pointing. Um, The fact that John's message was very much anticipating one to come and that that one to come was Christ. Um, And then 
they don't seem to have received the spirit, whereas the description of Apollos here, he seems to have the spirit. He also seems to correctly identify the one who was awaited with Jesus. And so in many ways, things are in place. He just needs to have a fuller apprehension of what the gospel entails and to, as it were, have his understanding that was very much shaped by the anticipatory message um, fulfilled in the message of the completion and the realization of that promise, which presumably he has some apprehension of, but has never fully um, been trained in. And again, in both cases, it seems unlikely that they become part of the, the church. Um, and so part of what will be involved is bringing them into the, the body of, of Christ. I find it really interesting that John's baptism, um, you know, his knowledge of John has got so far afield and been so influential. I mean, in the Gospels, it's obviously not given a huge amount of attention because it is just the, the, you know, the stepping stone onto the ministry of Jesus. But it must have been a hugely um, significant ministry, John's. Um, Josephus mentions it in like what is a fairly short list of things which went on uh, at that time he josephus gives it um some attention and um i wouldn't be surprised if this went on for a, a long time and was a, a really major event in uh, in and around the first century in israel whole cities were going out to him and um obviously we skip over it because it's not the main event in the gospels but i imagine it was a really significant moment mm-hmm. sort of billy graham of his time perhaps yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Richard Gaffin years ago uh, pointed to uh, verse 26 as a model of uh, Christian correction. Uh, Apollos is, um, we're already been told that he teaches the way of, uh, he teaches accurately the things concerning Jesus. So it's not as if he's a heretic, but he has a limited understanding. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, um, they don't denounce him. Um, they don't take to Twitter or Facebook, um, but they take him aside, uh, implies a private conference with Apollos, and explain to him the way of God more accurately so that the re- repetition of the accurate, accurate in verses 25 and 26 is significant. It's not that Apollos is misleading people. It's just that there is more to say and there's, uh, there are things that he needs to be that he needs to learn and teach that he didn't know. So there's a, a movement from accurate teaching to more accurate teaching that's, that happens because of, a, of a, uh, two, uh, two believers who, who privately take him aside and instruct him, which uh, Gaffin pointed out was a, a, rare, <laughs> a rare kind of method for correcting uh, fellow believers. First, uh, do we have the category of accurate but could be more accurate? Is that is that a way we <laughs> evaluate teachers, or do we put them in stark either either or kinds of uh, contrast? They're either orthodox or they're heretics. Is is there a middle ground where people are teaching accurately but they need to improve? And then, ha- what are the means that we use to improve that? Uh, here, it's a uh, a, a a private. Uh, a private conference that doesn't seem to be confrontational. It seems to be instructional. And uh, then the result of that is that policy is even better at what he was doing. And uh, mm. we see the powerful refutation of the Jews after he's been instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. I suspect, I suspect that one of the factors there is the um, context that they are hearing him in the synagogue. And it seems that the synagogue is a context where there are both Christians, um, unbelieving Jews, Jews of the type of Apollos who may have some inclination towards the gospel, have some um, sense of the message of John or something like that, and may be open. And in that context, where someone comes along with a more promising and message with some sense of what is true, um, you think, I can really work with this person. Whereas if it's a context where it's a, a denomination where everyone is, ha, is expected to be on the same page, it's a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. But it seems that the synagogue here would have been a far more theologically diverse community um, 
and that would allow for these sorts of interactions i think more than would be the case in one of the early christian assemblies that would maybe develop outside of the synagogue yeah and let's look at this from the other uh, point of view the point of view of apollos here's a man who's a native of alexandria which is the second largest city in in uh, the empire and of course very cosmopolitan and academic kind of city he's eloquent he's competent in the scriptures he's gone through some sort of formal instruction he's fervent in spirit he speaks apparently very well he's very eloquent and has uh, a good grasp of how to use his rhetoric and yet when these two this couple come to him and explain to him he actually listens to them (laughs) Uh, he actually learns from them, uh, and this this ability to be corrected, to be uh, to be guided by fellow believers, that's also a characteristic, I think, of just Christian faith, of Christian community. Um, it, it's here's a man who's who appears to be a leader, and yet those that he wants to lead, those who who, who he expects to lead, are actually leading him in a more accurate way in a more accurate understanding of the Christian faith. I think that's, that's pretty cool uh, and instructive. Yeah, that's, that's brought out in the narrative as well, isn't it? So in verse 26, he speaks boldly in the synagogue, and it, it's obviously uh, um, a persuasive speech of some sort. And yeah. then in verse 28, he powerfully re- refuted the Jews in public. So they keep and uh, uh, increase what's good about him. Um, they, they take his natural strengths and, and work with them. He's described in a way that is very reminiscent of Stephen. Mm. Mm. True. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.